And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And before we get going, I just want to stress, uh, for one, Happy New Year. I hope you all out there are uh, safe and healthy uh, with with everything going on. Of course, we're, we're all... Uh, a little troubled, but we're trying to uh, make it through with a smile. And, and I just wanted to stress to all of you how grateful and thank you, uh, uh, thankful, excuse me, I am that you guys continue to come back and continue to to be active with me with this research process and, and, and all this information that is really infinite in terms of uh, collecting. Uh, I, I I greatly appreciate it. We can't do it without all of you listeners out there. And I am thrilled uh, to be able to have these conversations. Um, and uh, today we're going to be remembering uh, Tommy Lasorda, who uh, passed over the weekend at age 93. And it's unfortunate that there is a dwindling amount of connections to the Brooklyn era with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And Tommy was certainly one of them. And uh, somebody who is, as I was telling him off air, you're uh, uh, Rob. You are a historian of both the Brooklyn Dodgers and the the Los Angeles Dodgers. The entire Dodger franchise is your open book. And uh, without further ado, Rob Barnes from out in Illinois. How you doing, Rob? You know, Sam. Thank you. First of all, Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. Happy New Year to everybody. Hope everybody's safe and healthy in this crazy world we're living in. And uh, it's just kind of neat. I don't know if you've ever been to Chicago in the winter. I highly don't recommend it at all. There's not much to do here. And the big thing is it is gray. There's this gray, like, uh, just cloud cover that, that uh, exists over Chicago for about 95% of the day. And then we, and we woke up to a bright, sunny sky. So that's nice to see at least. So at least you've got some sun going on. The old vitamin right. D helps everybody. Helps everybody in so many ways. The older I get, the more I need it. So thanks for having me on. Exactly, and and that's something that I think doesn't get stressed enough is vitamin C, vitamin D, how to keep yourself healthy uh, throughout all of this. It's not just about social distancing. It's not just about the masks and and hand sanitizer. It's also about the way that we treat our bodies. And I, I think unfortunately in this country. Um, without going on a rant about the way food is allowed to be made in this country. Uh, it's hard to put a, uh, a, a snacks together that are healthy, let alone an entire meal in this country. So uh, I, I want to stress to everybody, uh, you know, don't be going to McDonald's every day. <laughs> you know, that's, that's getting specific. But, 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 but that type of stuff will help you. Well, well, you know, it's not, everybody's different, and, and it's not, you know, the, the healthiest people certainly get sick all the time, but there's definitely things that you can do that need to be stressed uh, uh, to prevent either COVID or anything else uh, from coming into your life. And, you know, because one, one way or another, as, as we are reminded every day, Rob, as we are reminded, as we, we remember Tommy Lasorda, is that life is finite. And one day it'll be taken away from us. Even it, it, it's, it's something that we, we, there, there's always until the day you die, uh, this disconnect because everything seems so alive and everything seems so 
know, just going strong that it, it it's something that it, it's just, it's hard when you see somebody as animated, especially as somebody as animated as Tommy, like your, your, your brain can't fathom how that could ever get taken away. Oh, very true. Larger than life is, is a nice way to describe Tommy from somebody who may not be as familiar with him as somebody as I am. Tommy was, you know, his, his Brooklyn ties are, you know, he came up, he was originally signed by the Phillies. Dodgers drafted him in one of the minor league drafts, worked his way in the late forties. It took him like five, six years to work his way to the minors. He had, he said all sorts of, I've, I've seen a lot of nice tributes to him. The Dodgers put out an incredible one. Uh, he uh, struck out 25 batters in, I think it was a nine-inning game. It's crazy. For a guy who didn't have a lot of speed, he had a – read his books. He had a, he had a, he had a funky curveball, and he struck out – over the course of three minor league games, I think it was 25, 15, and like 13. An insane amount of strikeouts. But for that – for him to not be able to make it – that that step from AAA to the majors, and for him to still keep his – positive outlook on life is something that I find very, very, very inspiring because not everybody makes it to the majors. Not everybody's going to be that, 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 that Clayton Kershaw to give you a, a, a modern day reference. And that's a great point. Uh, looking at his Wikipedia page, uh, it, it does say that he, where's that record part? Um, uh, it's something that, that when the Montreal ex, when the Montreal Royals, excuse me, uh, were no longer, he had the record for most wins, if I'm correct. Do you do you have any recollection of that? I believe that is correct. Here we go. Yes, I do. I did yes. find it finally. So um, he is the winningest pitcher in the history of the Montreal Royals, 107 and 57. And on June 24th, 2006, he was inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. And I, I think, like, thinking about these types of players, uh, whereas Lasorda went off on the, the coaching world, uh, somebody like um, Bob Euchre, who made a career joking about how bad he was, you know, <laughs> the, the two play like, it's because of those personalities that they were able to persevere and be grade A successes in what they continued on to. That's very true, because if you think about it, Right, baseball is not just a team sport. It's, an, it's an, an industry. You know, there are many different ways for people to make a living. And someone like a Tommy and a Bob Euchre, you say, who had marginal talent, good enough to, you know, to get the proverbial cup of coffee there. Euchre obviously had a lot more success than Tommy did. But there are many other ways to make a living in it. And both of those people, among many other people, have found a way to make it their career and their livelihood for somebody who loves the game and loves it so much. And it's obviously the Tommy love baseball. Now here's a little interesting thing about his uh, debut in Brooklyn on May 5th, 1955. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's so beautiful that, that he actually did end up getting a ring. Uh, even if it, it didn't come to fruition in terms of, uh, of the success he could, he could have uh, fulfilled. But what's so interesting that there is a Dodger connection here on the other side uh, of his first game. Uh, reading from Wikipedia, 
He made his only start for the Dodgers on May 5th, 1955, but was removed after the first inning after tying a major league record with three wild <laughs> pitches in one inning and being spiked by Wally Moon of the St. Louis Cardinals when Moon scored on the third wild pitch. Um, and of course, so you, you of course, being a, 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 like we said, a historian of both eras of Dodgers, uh, did Wally Moon and Tommy Lasorda ever overlap? My guess is considering uh, uh, Wally, they Wally do... Moon, he, uh, he made, yeah, go ahead. Well, Wally, Wally Moon made made history in the in the L.A. Coliseum days, right shortly after the move move. Once he was traded to the Dodgers, and he was able to hit the 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 aptly named moonshots over the forty foot left field <laughs> screen at the two hundred and eighty foot uh, length foul pole at the L.A. Memorial Coliseum, and he was able to inside out the ball and just pop it over the screen, which is, I mean, that's wonderful. But uh, obviously. Tommy was was gone. Tommy at that t- at that point, I believe, was just becoming a scout for the Dodgers. So after Wally spiked him in Ebbets Field, you know, I don't know how much they overlapped before. That is a great story. <laughs> well, it looks like uh, Wally Moon uh, played for the Dodgers till 1965, uh, but I'm sure that they uh, certainly interacted uh, from alumni uh, times and and just in general since he was the Dodgers manager for 20 years. Uh, and, and it's ironic. I the last ride that I got. So to everybody out there, I uh, generally uh, for for money, I am a Lyft driver, and I uh, come down to the Trenton area from time to time because of, of a certain ride. And um, today, my last ride before I talked to you, Rob, brought me to Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which of course is right outside of Philadelphia. And okay. uh, sure. let's let's start all the way. Let's start all the way back there. Uh, he graduated from Norristown High School in Norristown, Pennsylvania, in 1944. What do you know about his uh, his Philadelphia years? His Philadelphia years is, from, from my recollection, from my research and reading his books and everything, is you know he grew up loving baseball. He uh, obviously this is pre-draft era. And from what I remember from his first book, The Artful Dodger, which came out in the 80s, is you, he, he called himself a skinny little left-hander from Norristown, PA. Norristown being a suburb, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, north maybe of Philadelphia. I don't know Phil, my Philadelphia geography that well. I've only been there a, a handful of times. And, you know, everybody back then, obviously, everybody was the same way. Everybody was trying to go, and they were just amateur. It was It was – it was a free-for-all out there. Scouts were huge. Scouts would, would, would be assigned to a certain part of the area. Of, from each team would be assigned to a certain part of a region of the country. They would sign X amount of players and just bring them in. And a lot of time, people were hoarding. You know, teams hoarded. Branch Rickey, you know, we, uh, we all know and love Branch Rickey. Him with, with, the, with the Cardinals back then. And by now, he had moved to the Dodgers. You know, he would hoard players. He would sign players and and – just get him into camp and see what it can do him. And if, and if it doesn't work out, trade him off. I don't recall Tommy as being uh, uh, an ex, uh, 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 like a superstar talent, a, a potential that would be earmarked for a fast track to MLB. But, you know, you're just working your way up the ladder for all those years. And obviously, as the way it happened, it took him years and years and years to work up those ladders because unlike nowadays, you know, there were sometimes there were five, six, and seven different levels of that ladder before you made it to the majors. 
And you wonder, too, considering that he got money, uh, Branch Rickey got money for every player, whether that had anything to do with it. But we, but this isn't a referendum on the, the styles of, uh, of Branch Rickey, no, for sure. sure. Um, now, what do you know about this? Uh, and, and here's where my ignorance gets ahead of me. Uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers drafted Lasorda from the Phillies organization in 1949. What type of draft was, was that? They had minor league drafts where uh, I think of it, the easiest way to equate it is when MLB went through all the expansions in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you were able to protect X amount of players on your roster. And then once those players were basically off limits, after that, everybody was open for a draft, and then each team got to do a draft. And it seemed, you know, you go around and obviously worst, worst record to best record, you could go ahead and pick from anybody, which think about it back then, though. The talent, I mean, how do you be able to research someone like a Tommy Lasorda? How does, you know, how does, how does a branch rookie know that, oh, yeah, I've got, I've got, a, I've got a hunch. You know, I, I, saw his, I saw his most recent outing on YouTube. No, YouTube obviously didn't exist. I mean, how do you know who to take? A lot of times it's, well, then you're relying on your scouts again. So, so the draft went through, and obviously right. it became the first MLB player draft for overall talent didn't occur until the 60s, and there's a Dodger tie into that as well. Uh, well, uh, go ahead and jump a couple decades by all means. Uh, tell us about that one. Okay. A little sidetrack. The first MLB amateur draft was in 1965. The first player chosen, Oakland had the, was it, no, it was still Kansas City, sorry. Kansas City had the first pick in the first ever draft. The first player taken was an outfielder from Arizona State University named Rick Monday, and he obviously worked his way up, played with Reggie Jackson, <laughs> traded to the Cubs, traded, saved the flag at Dodgers Stadium. The next year was traded to the Dodgers, and hits an incredible home run in 81, and I'm going on a tangent, and he's now a broadcaster for the Dodgers. Of course, and that is a, a beautiful connection indeed, and that, that's funny the way all of this, this ties back around. And, you know, think about, like, the Philadelphia connection, once he made it to Kansas City, uh, of course, the athletics used to be in Philadelphia and were now in mm-hmm. Kansas City at the time. And just a little bit uh, of – just some more reading from Wikipedia. Before the 1956 season, Lasorda was sold to the Kansas City Athletics. Kansas City traded him to the New York Yankees for Wally Burnett in July 1956. He appeared in 22 games for the Yankees affiliate AAA Denver Bears in 1956 and 1957 and then was sold back to the Dodgers in 1957. During his tenure with the Bears, Lasorda was profoundly influenced by Denver manager Ralph Hoke. Uh, Hauk, excuse me. Correct me, however, I'm I'm supposed to. That's correct. I don't know. <laughs> it's Hauk, right? Yes, it is Hauk. Who became Lasorda's role model for a major league manager? Quote: Ralph taught me that if you treat players like human beings, they will play like Superman. End quote. And he told Bill uh, Plaschke in the biography "I Live for This: Baseball's Last True Believer." Quote: He taught me how to pat on a shoulder. Uh, how a pat on the shoulder can be just as important as a kick in the butt. Uh, just, just finish this paragraph. Lasorda returned to Montreal for 1958 through 1960 season, but was released in July 1960. 
Uh, and as we mentioned before, he is the winningest pitcher in the history of the team, 177, and was inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame June 24, 2006. He ended his major league career with an 0-4 record and a 6.52 ERA. And it looks like right from from there he gets right into uh, the the uh, coach uh, scouting and coaching. Um, and and it just just hearing all these uh, before we go down that rabbit hole, just thinking about the minor leagues and because it also mentions something about Schenectady, uh, Denver, of course, which is now a major league city, was not at the time. I mean you can really make your way around this, this great land of ours uh, being part of the minor leagues. Oh, oh, without a doubt. I mean, like we said, I mean, with, like I said, the five or six different levels of minor leagues. I mean, it's like every single, uh, it seemed like every little town. Well, think about out West. You don't have a team. You didn't have teams out there then. Baseball was a bit, was a, was a big yeah. entertainment uh, business out there, you know, you had your triple A's, you had your double A's, single A's, B C's and D's. And the, you can, like you say, you work your way around, you see the country. I want to circle back though, what you said back to his, uh, sure. his playing days with Kansas city. I saw it in a, a tribute or I read it somewhere. He was, he faced Mickey Mantle four times in his life when he was with the A's struck him out twice. Which is which is crazy, and he got and he got singles off from the other two, which is just just kind of just kind of a neat little neat little reference that goes back to his curveball. He must have had a pretty darn good, good curveball because you know everybody right. you know I keep coming across his curveball and how you know he must have obviously worked on it. So just circle on back to that. Yeah, and it's uh, pretty remarkable though that you know that is like. You can have this one little thing, and I'm sure you've seen the 10th inning of uh, Ken Burns' baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, was one, there was one guy, and I, I apologize that I'm spacing on his name, but he talked about the semi-pro teams out in the parade ga- grounds in Brooklyn uh, and how you, know, you can see some really great baseball, but you do notice one little thing off. You know, and they're all carrying around – like, you know, Kansas City, the Kansas City Royals, uh, duffel bag, uh, Yankees, Mets, whatever it is, um, that it's, it's, it's so rare thing together to, you know, figure out whether or not you can, you're, you're going to be, uh, let's say, a Kiki Hernandez or even a Cody Bellinger. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, uh, it's, uh, think about all the kids that are trying out for this. And even back in the day when baseball was, you know, I still consider it the greatest sport and, and, and the best sport, but it has so much competition now from, and uh, from uh, basketball, f- football, even, even, even soccer, you know, back when baseball was the game, you had everybody trying to get in there, you know, and everybody was trying to at least to, to at least get on that bottom rung of the ladder to start the climb up. And like you say, you wrote, you, you refer to yeah. seeing guys in those, in the, in, in the Ken Burns uh, special with, 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 you know, they get invited to a tryout camp. Here's a duffel bag, throw your stuff in it. So you don't look like a, you know, so you don't look sloppy walking around the locker room, you know, how many kids <laughs> are like that, that don't even get that, even that initial rung on their, on the, on to do the initial rung on the ladder. It's crazy. It is crazy, and uh, we're going to have this uh, the Wikipedia page be kind of our 
narrative here, and, and it'll help us bounce off of, uh, you know, his entire life and career. Uh, so uh, the minor league section, Al Campanis, the Dodger scouting director, hired Lasorda as a scout in 1960. In 1966, he became the manager of the Pocatello Chiefs in the Rookie League, then managed the Ogden Dodgers from 1966 to 1968. He became the Dodgers AAA Pacific Coast League manager in 1969 with the Spokane Indians. He remained manager of the AAA team when the Dodgers moved the farm club to the Albuquerque Dukes in 1972. His 1972 Dukes won the PCL championship. Lasorda was also a manager for the Dominican Winter Baseball League team, Tigres del Lichi. He led the team uh, to the 1973 Caribbean World Series title in Venezuela. Um, and it, it seemed, speaking of climbing the ladder when it comes to the coaching ranks, uh, it was clear that there was something separating Tommy Lasorda from the rest of the pack when it came to coaching players and, and getting the, the best out of, of every level he went to. Um, and he had a lot of success before he came up to the Dodgers, uh, which is, is the next step. Oh, most definitely. If you, and if you think about it too, and, and this his 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 ladder going up the minor leagues. You know, for, first uh, I want to I want to circle back to the fact when he was a scout. Uh, to my dozens of Twitter followers, I tweeted a, a, a photo, two photos that I had from the 1964 Los Angeles Dodgers yearbook. When Tommy was a scout, they would print every every year when when the yearbook came out, and I had access to them from another from another buddy of mine who's been on your podcast, John Nelson, he has like every yearbook from like the forties through the 1970s. Crazy. And so what they would do is they'd print pictures of all the scouts. And also what what I think was very funny and very oldie tiny, they would print also the name of the scouts, their address and their home phone numbers. So if you have a hot tip on, uh, on, on uh, Joey down the street who has a good knuckleball or a good fastball, you know, you can call your local scout and give him a tip because that's the way it worked. It was the wild west before the draft. So I just thought that was kind of fun. Okay. So back to his, his working his way up the, up the ladder. I think what really, no, I don't think I know what really was amazing with him as he worked his way up the ladder, he kept having these same guys over and over he would manage these guys over and over and over. Guys like in the infield. You've heard of, for you guys, un, you know, not as knowledgeable on the Los Angeles Dodgers. They're infield of the 70s. Ron Say at third. Bill Russell at short. Davey Lopes at second. Steve Garvey at first. Who didn't start as a first baseman. He started as a third baseman. But these guys all came up to the minors all the way. And they were all managed by Tommy all the way up. Not everybody every year, but still. They kept running into him. And and as you've seen from the videos, as you've seen from, from reading and, uh, uh, about how gregarious he was and how outgoing he was and how he treated them all like, like they're all his sons, you know, no one to hug him, no one to kick him in the butt when, they're, when they've done something wrong, know how to be an incredible, incredible motivator. That in and of itself, the fact that he was with these kids, kids, right, all the way up their rungs of the ladder while he made his rungs up the ladder made his transition to L.A., which we'll get to, so much, much, so much easier and smoother. Right, exactly. And, and here's another Brooklyn connection, considering that uh, 
before he took over, he was the third base coach for Walter Alston. Um, and he served for almost four seasons. Uh, he was widely regarded as Alston's heir apparent and turned down several major league managing jobs elsewhere to remain in the Dodgers fold. He also later returned to the third base coach box on a temporary basis while managing the Dodgers. Uh, but before we get there, um, uh, is, I'm sure you've heard him talk about it. I'm sure you've read it. It, it wasn't just that, that Dodger blue going all the way back from when he got drafted in 1949. There was just something that, that, kept his heart beating blue. I really think so. I really, uh, uh, to come through and, and to go through everything, to be on the 55, to have played with Jackie Robinson, to have been replaced on the roster. We didn't mention this, but we'll mention it now. To have been replaced on the 55 roster by some guy named Sandy Koufax. Koufax, right, yeah. I wonder what a, <laughs> I kind of forget what kind of a career he had. <laughs> so, to be able to be intertwined into history so much like that, to be, to play with greats, you know, everybody we talk about that you're talking about in the research for your program, to Duke Snyder, to Carl Erskine, to Carl Farillo. I mean, we can, we can list them all to be able to have just a little bit of a tie in with those guys. And then to be able to, you know, make his way back to that, to Dodger blue. You know, he said in his, he says in his book, you know, he blood Dodger blue. You know, it sounds corny, it sounds whatever, but I really think the guy was the ultimate corporate guy, the ultimate employee you want on your side. He'll go to work for you. He'll go to bat for you, proverbially, in any situation you could possibly think. And, and, and to tie into his third-base coaching, uh, third coaching job while he was being groomed to replace Walter Alston, which the O'Malley family, by now it was Peter, was running the team was brilliant and Al Campanis and have all the GMs to be able to have him run, uh, be ready to go is amazing. If you go back, go on YouTube, find highlights of the 74 world series when the Dodgers are playing the ace, obviously Austin is still managing. Tommy is coaching third and he is mic'd up and it is just a treasure to watch and to listen, <laughs> to hear him. You know, I think there's a clip when, 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 Penguin, Ron Say, the Penguin was his nickname, ends up in third base. And he's slapping him up. But no, I go Penguin. It just, it's just, it's just a joy to watch. He is a little kid in a grown man's body, loving the sport that we all love, and he loved it for his entire life, which makes it beyond cool. And it also just makes you think about how, you know, uh, it's it's pretty fascinating as well as unique. And now, of course, you know, it's famous that Walter Alston uh, uh, had basically 20 uh, straight years of one year contracts, but they basically went from as a franchise, uh, including Brooklyn and LA uh, 20 years of, of one manager and then another 20 years of another, it's 40 years, just two uh, players. And especially me as a Mets fan, we, you know, we're hoping that a brand new era of, of organizational competency has uh, been uh, uh, brought upon us now. Uh, but, you know, literally, like within like two, three months, everybody's talking of, about whether or not this guy can cut it. Like nobody ever. I don't know whether it's just having to do with the impatience of, of the modern world, 
or uh, uh, whether it's just that unique. I mean, what, 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 what's your take on that? I think it comes down to stability. You know, you talk about Walter Alston was, uh, was, uh, became the manager in 54. They stumbled in 54. And a lot of people were like going, wait a minute, what is this? This guy is, you know, this is not the right thing. What, what are we doing? Did we do something wrong? And a lot of people were calling for his, for his head after a, well, I think it was a second place finish to the Giants in 54, you know. But, you know, they were patient. They allowed the process to work its way out because Walter was the actual 180 degrees opposite of what Tommy was. Walter was quiet. He was stoic. He would sit in the bench. He would just let the game play out. He would talk to his coaches. He was not, you know, up and cheerleading and slapping guys on the, on the butt as they come in and doing, doing the Tommy stick, which, which didn't necessarily rub with some people as vice versa. Tommy stick didn't rub with some people as well. But the fact that, the O'Malley family stuck with Walter Alston through thick and through thin. There was a lot more uh, thick than thin, especially considering he was manager during the move. And all of a sudden they went in 59. They're crazy good in the sixties. And now he's getting older after Koufax retires after 66, they have a little bit of a down downward spiral a little bit. Then they get all these young guys that Tommy managed in the seventies. And then they hand it off to Tommy Lasorda in the tail end of 76, really beginning of 77. And the stability of having, like you say, of having one manager for 40-plus years is something we'll probably never see again, but it is something that I think could be studied upon as just the fact that is, it, the stability there leads to success and breeds success. Yeah, it's very difficult because it, it's hard – that you're you're going to be, you know, a winning team for 20 straight years, and of course the Dodgers had some ebbs and flows, um, and and by the tail end of his his uh, managerial career, things uh, were you know there were not perennial playoff contenders, uh, but at the same time, I mean, like that was the Mike Piazza era, but that that well, obviously I'm I'm jumping the gun here a little bit. There's a connection with Mike Piazza and Tommy Lasorda. Um, so this, this does, uh, uh, the next part does cover, uh, of like basically covers like his 20 years, but we're, we're going to read the first paragraph and then go back a little bit. Lasorda became a Los Angeles Dodgers manager, September 29th, 1976 upon Alston's retirement. He managed the final four games of the 76 season. He compiled 1,599 wins and a hundred of uh, 1,439 losses as Dodger manager, won two, two world championships, four National League pennants, and eight division titles in his 20-year career as Dodgers manager. His 16 wins and 30 NL championship games managed were the most of any manager at the time of his retirement. His 61 postseason games managed ranked fourth all-time behind Bobby Cox, Casey Stengel, uh, who, all of whose games took place during the World Series and baseball's pre-divisional play days and Joe Torres. He also managed in four all-star games. So let's go all the way back to uh, him taking over at the end in 1976 and then make the world series in 1977. See, this is my wheelhouse. You know, this is my wheelhouse 1977 when they, when he was basically, basically his first year, I was a sophomore in high school. 
I was a Dodger fan. I was digging it, living outside of Chicago. It was hard to be a fan in the pre-internet days, but I still was a fan, and it was cool. And he had a stud, he had a loaded lineup in 77. 77 was the year the Dodgers became the first team to have 40, 30, 40 players hit 30 or more homers. Ron Say, Steve Garvey, Dusty Baker, and Reggie Smith. And Dusty Baker actually famously did it on the last day of the season. It was pretty crazy. That's a great story in, in and of itself. So they have this incredibly stacked lineup with a lot of it homegrown, like I said before, that he managed in the minor leagues, either probably in, most in Albuquerque and when he was in Ogden in the rookie leagues as well. So he has a camaraderie with these guys that, is fabulous. But as, like I said, I'm, I'm going to refer circle back to something about managerial styles. And we've talked about not everybody was a Tommy fan, right? Uh, the, I've, I've mentioned before, one of the reasons why I'm a Dodger fan is through Don Sutton, a Dodger, Dodger pitcher, hall of famer, et cetera. He was a Walter Alston guy. He's a tick older. He came up, was in, the, was in the Dodgers with Alston. And when Tommy came around, he wasn't necessarily a fan. They kind of butted heads but he's your best pitcher. So what do you do? Like I say, not everybody's going to buy into, into the Tommy Rahran is. So 77 was, you know, they beat Philadelphia in the NLCS and then they go to the world series against the, the who are those, that team from out East? I can't remember. Oh, that's right. The Yankees, right. <laughs> For how many times have the Dodgers played the Yankees in the world series? It's, 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 it's really wonderful. And my, my mother used to say, who I, I think I've referred to this before. Oh, God, it's always the Dodgers and the Yankees in the World Series. You know, I would love to see it. <laughs> so, 77 happens so, to be so the that, year of, of – of, Sorry, sorry go ahead. ahead. 77 no, no, is the year of Reggie pitching. Jackson and his three home runs on three straight pitches in game six, I think it is, and an incredible performance. You've got to tip your hat to him. So, <laughs> so that's 77. Well, so – so let's let's focus real quick on that specific game and the infamous soundbite that occurred afterwards by Tommy Lasorda. Um, <laughs> you know, and and these things become just as famous as the actual games itself. Uh, it, I I wish we could play it. Of course, we cannot. Um, <laughs> but you know, without without using all of the colorful language, if you could kind of uh, break that down for you. Uh, you know, I haven't heard it in a while. I heard the Kurt Bavakwa one just last week, which is, which is just on a parallel to being a, a brilliancy. It is, let's, let's just say he is asked by a reporter what he thought of Reggie's performance. And Tommy's, like you say, Tommy's response is laced with a lot of profanity, as which he known, was known to use throughout the career, throughout his career. You know, go, go, it's on YouTube. Go find it. And there's, and it's right. obviously he does not, say I have a lot of nice things to say about Reggie Jackson, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, but I, I, what I love about it is the nuance of the way that he breaks down some of the, the ridiculousness of the way certain reporters go about uh, right. asking these yeah. really cliche questions. Um, and he, <laughs> he just reminds you that it can't always be, well, you know, uh, we really wish we had thrown some better pitches, but the guy's uh, a machine and, uh, you know, you got to tip your cap to him. 
that would have been maybe the cliche way of saying it and, and the respectful way of saying it. But Tommy Lasorda, and, and respect is, is you know, uh, another, like, nuanced uh, conversation about what exactly that means. Um, I, I, you know, and, and, of course, Reggie has not always necessarily been loved by everybody uh, as well. But you've you got to think, though, because Reggie has a nice personality as well, it, it, that I, I'm guessing he actually probably, like, chuckled and kind of appreciated the moment. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure Reggie did. You know, you, you, like you say, you talk about Reggie, and he had a great personality. And like I said, he didn't like he didn't necessarily uh, uh, gel with everybody that he ran into. Obviously, him and George Steinbrenner. That's a whole other tangent. But yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure Reggie chuckled after hearing that, and I'm sure. I'm sure the entire Yankee clubhouse had a great laugh after hearing that and, and hearing that 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 tirade. So, you know, not to speed it up or anything, but they lose in 78. And let's go to 81 uh, because that, that was – obviously it was, it was a split season. Um, it, it, and, it, you know, a lot of people were talking about it with this past season, which is ironic that the Dodgers ended up winning it as mm-hmm. well. Um, but that must have been so satisfying, not just for you, but the entire team uh, because – Regardless, uh, just like this past season, everybody was in the same boat, and the Dodgers took advantage of of the moment. Most definitely. For I mean, first and foremost, just a, a quick uh, uh, primer on that season. You know, with the strike, they declared at at the day of the strike, everybody in first place won the first half. Boom! So the Dodgers had won the first half. They were in first place. They could quote unquote coast a little bit. In the second half, they did. They finished, I think, second or third. Uh, Houston, Houston won the second half, so they had to beat. They had to play. So there was an additional round of playoffs, basically like what it was before in 2019, not with the additional round we had in 2020. In 2019, you had first uh, a division series, then a league championship series, and that was the first. That was, and that didn't happen again until the, until after the strike in the 90s. So. So therefore, the Dodgers go down two two games nothing uh, in the in the division series to Houston. They have to fight their way back, and they do. They go down two games to nothing to Montreal in the NLCS and fight their way back. And to my previous my previously referenced Rick Monday home run, it is called Blue Monday in um, the Ask Montreal Expos fans about that one, and they'll be like. Uh, Dodgers are uh, uh, down in the in the. It's then no, it's tied in the, in the eight, eighth inning of the of Game Five in Montreal. It's been snowing. It's a crazy day. Rick Monday hits this incredibly awesome homer to basically propel them to the World Series. So that is fabulous. And then the '81 World Series, just in a nutshell, is the Dodgers and Yankees again for the third time in I guess five years now. And like about the eighth or ninth time overall, and find the little payback. You know, uh, this is when George Steinbrenner runs into some LA fans in an elevator in Los Angeles, and there's allegedly a tussle there, but whatever. And, you know, Tommy's his master motivator self through them, and the Dodgers win it in six games, clinching it at Yankee Stadium on a. I still remember it. It was a freshman in college, sophomore in college, watching on a little itty-bitty black-and-white TV, and it was glorious. 
And that must have been even more of a cherry on top, the fact that they did it on, on the, uh, the Yankees' home turf. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Now, this part, I, uh, you know, it's, as being a Mets fan, it's a little sour place, but uh, the, uh, the 1988 Los Angeles Dodgers, who were underestimated against the Mets, who were underestimated against um, Just talk about Tommy Lasorda's role in pushing that team up beyond everyone's expectations. Once again, master motivator. Uh, Like you said, the team was, by the time the playoffs came around, I mean, they were hobbled. This was Kirk Gibson's first year as a free agent. This requires a little backstory, and and it involves a former Met, Jesse Orozco, at Dodger Town in spring training, uh, one of the first games they're getting, everybody's there. They're they're getting ready to go out for the first game, and Jesse Orozco decides to pull a little prank on on the new superstar Kirk Gibson. Jesse Orozco takes some eye black, puts it on the inside of his uh, of the inside rim of, of of Gibby's cap, and when he unbeknownst to him, I don't know if they're outside, whatever. Gibby goes to put his hat on notices that there's this black eye black all over his forehead now, and he goes ballistic. He goes absolutely insane. A little backstory on Kirk Gibson. Kirk Gibson was a football player as well as a baseball player at Michigan State University. He has that football player mentality. He played baseball like he was a football player with everything going 1,000 miles an hour all the time for a short burst. Kirk Gibson goes ballistic. Kirk Gibson gets in front of everybody with Tommy's blessing and says, listen, I did not come here to be with a bunch of clowns. I did not come here to do this. I came here to win. So that, that, that speech of Gibby's at the start of spring training in 1988 basically propels, propels the Dodgers to uh, overachieve to the nth degree because, like we say, nobody picked them. They did not have that much talent. And by the time the playoffs came around, they kept having injury after injury. Gibson go to the go to the playoffs in in, uh, in game six. It is or game five because they had to go back to LA in, in the rain in, in Shea Stadium. Gibby goes for a, a fly ball and uh, and ah, I can't remember it to me. I think it's his knee. He pulls his knee and he is basically out. He is out for the the rest of the NLCS. And in that night and that game that night game. Mike Sosha hits another famous homer in Dodger history to, to win that game to send it back to L.A. and where Hershiser closes it out. I don't know what out. you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't shut la, up. La, 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 la. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, was... I, I was three years old at the time, and, of course, uh, for anybody out there, I, I uh, was a, I'm a converted Mets fan. I really started my, my uh, bringing in Mets history in 1998, 1999. Um, so it's you know it's not really me uh, uh, necessarily like like it's it's basically like hearing from all of these other Mets fans. It's you know Mike had a Mike Shosha had a middle name and it was the F word. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's you know we say that we got we got plenty of guys. Hey, back to little sidetrack back to '85 when the Dodgers blew it. You know. Jack Clark and Ozzy Smith did it on consecutive games. Uh, you can look it up in, in the 85 NLCS and 
I was a little upset at Tommy Lasorda on that one for his uh, pitching, but that's another story. So back to 88. 88, okay, so they get past the Mets, which nobody predicted them to win. They go against the play, the Bash Brother A's, you know, a little pre-steroid maybe with uh, Mark McGuire and uh, Jose Canseco. You know, they're still, you know, they're probably still just, they're probably just starting to get into it. And everybody knows the story of game one. You know, Gibson doesn't play down. They're down two. It's the ninth inning. Everybody says he's out of the lineup. He doesn't come out to the, to the, be introduced before the, before the, before game one. Around, uh, the seventh or eighth inning, Gibson is in the clubhouse. Gibson's talking, listening to the, to the broadcast, and he's hearing Vince Scully, of course, talk about, you know, Gibson's not available to play. And it motivates him a little bit, you know. He goes out and starts hitting the ball off the tee in, in the tunnel underneath Dodger Stadium, and he finally gets the clubhouse boy. Uh, I think it's Ben Hines. Then he gets the hitting coach, Ben Hines, to go tell Tommy, you know, I got in a bat for you. And so bottom of the ninth, Mike Davis with the incredible stolen base before the walk and then the stolen base. And then, you know, the rest, the history. I mean, the, the, one of the, the, the greatest home run in, in LA, if not Brooklyn, all Dodgers history is hit then and propelled the Dodgers to win in five over a team that was won a hundred plus games. And the Dodgers were decimated by injuries and an incredible pitching performance by Oral Hershiser propels them to the championship. It was, it was crazy. Awesome. Yeah, and I, I do remember him, his uh, clubhouse, like the, the the clip I've seen of him saying, nobody believed in a note. Uh, I forget what the, the yep. first thing he says, but I think he says something, uh, nobody said we could get past the mighty Mets. Uh, you know, yep. that's the one that yep. stuck out to me. Like, nobody of believed we could do it, nobody... but we believed it, and everybody screams. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, he goes, nobody thought we'd be in the division. Nobody thought we'd beat the mighty Mets. Nobody, we thought to beat the team that won a hundred. I want to say four games. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, there that that's that was master motivation. First of all, set, the the tone of the entire team was set in the right way in spring training by Kirk Gibson after the the hat incident, and Tommy Lasorda was the master motivator, pulling all the right strings, having a little bit of of, of luck behind him when he needed it. And but that's you know come on we all know there, there's there's a you know you hit the ball at somebody it's a, on 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 the screws you know it's an out you hit a little flare it's a base hit that's the way baseball works it's part of the beauty of the game so all exactly. that was working for the Dodgers in '88. Um, and uh, interesting tidbit: Lasorda managed nine players who won the NL Rookie of the Year award. Uh, the winners came in two strings of consecutive players from. 1979 to 1982, he managed Rick Sutcliffe, Steve Howe, Fernando Valenzuela, and Steve Sachs. From 1992 to 1995, he managed Eric Karros, Mike Piazza, Raul Mondesi, and Hideo Nomo. And before retiring during the 1996 season, he had also managed that year's eventual winner, Todd Hollinsworth. And it sounds like that goes to what you the, the, the two words you keep using about Tommy Lasorda, master motivator. Yeah, yeah, and here's another thing too that is true that is that you know that I always thought was true. I've I've seen it, the point driven home to me during the tributes I've I've watched over the last since he passed last week. He was not afraid to play the young guy. He was not. He always wanted to, you know because there's a shelf life of a player. We all know that you get old. You get you know you're not the guy coming up who's who's 22 is a lot 
quicker and better than the quote unquote better than the guy who's 32. So he always knew when to put the rookie in, when it's time to platoon, when it's time to say, and the Dodgers have always been famous for this. They've always been famous and they took a lot of heat for it. They've always been good at trading somebody a year or two before they, the decline really starts to hit. That way you can yeah, that way you can retrieve enough odd for them on the backside, and that way you know that way they don't necessarily hurt your team. So those the, yeah those two strings, especially I love, the, the 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 first string with Sutcliffe, Howe, Valenzuela, and Sachs. I mean, back to 1981, Fernando Fernando Mania, as it was called, set you know mm-hmm. Los Angeles and the baseball world on fire. This guy was amazing. He, he had like six. Of his first, he was like eight and zero by the All Star break. By the time of the strike, and with like a one point something ERA, it was just unbelievable. And how it, how it was just so good for baseball. How good it was for Southern California with a large um, uh, Mexican American population base to have Fernando there, and it energized the fan base. And it was just crazy. Every time he came out and th- every time he was scheduled to pitch, whether it was at home or on the road. It was a party. It was fun to watch it from afar. Yeah, it, it you know, just it's still to this day, you know, you, you can check out uh, clips, the MLB Network or wherever you want to find it. You know, it, it shows the grip baseball could have on popular culture um, and, and that we really haven't seen in many ways in, in a long time. Uh, it was nice to see that uh, both – the youth record, the the uh, youth ratings were up this year, as well as the ratings overall. Uh, you know, obviously, maybe attributing to the fact that people were, you know, didn't have anything to do and were inside. Um, but then again, they did have other things to do. All of a sudden, uh, people remembered that they were craving sports and they were craving baseball it, because there's still more distractions than ever before, and people came back to the game. So I'm going to finish this part about uh, the, his managerial career. Lasorda's final game was a 4-3 victory over the Houston Astros at Dodger Stadium on June 23, 1996. The following day, he drove himself to the hospital complaining of abdominal pains, and in fact, he was having a heart attack. He officially retired on July 29, 1996, and uh, at the time of his death, his, 5, 000, uh, his excuse me, 1,599 career wins ranked 22nd all-time in MLB history. Um, I want to loop back to Mike Piazza, and I'm sure you – do you remember what number he was drafted? And it wasn't exactly nepotism, obviously. He's a family friend. Uh, but Mike Piazza surely made Tommy Lasorda look good with that one. Oh, most definitely. Uh, I can look it up. But it's, it's in the 30s. That back when the draft was, in, was, was 30 yeah, plus rounds. Yeah, 36 maybe is what maybe. he wore number 31. Obviously, it's not 31st. I know it was one of the last rounds, and I, Mike's Mike's book is good. You know, it's you know for your Mets, it's got a mm-hmm. lot of Mets stuff in it too as well. There's there's a good there's a there's a good chunk of that in. It. But he was obviously, uh, you know, the old, the the diamond in the rough. You know, at a, a, his, he was buddies with Tom, with with uh, Mike's dad. The rumor is he's his godfather. He's not his godfather. He's Tommy is mm. Mike's brother's godfather, but that's okay. Whatever. Uh, and, but obviously <laughs> and he's been a family friend quick, his whole life. 60, 
62nd round of the 88th okay. amateur draft, 1,390th player picked overall. <laughs> and he's in the Hall of Fame, right? Okay. <laughs> and he's in the Hall of Fame. Right. I mean, right. And, and can... not to tangents, you know, I was a Yankee fan at the time, but I, 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 I basically got obsessed with baseball, and the fact that my town had two teams was just a godsend for me. And Mike Piazza's swing, that follow-through that he – and you can uh, uh, talk to this about having first seen Mike when he came up, that follow-through, the way that he would bring the bat all around and, and, and bring it back across his shoulder, it, it was just so so unique to Mike Piazza himself uh, that I, I thank Tommy Lasorda from the bottom of my soul for bringing Mike Piazza to the Major League world, helping to bring Mike Piazza to the major league world. Um, and I, I just, I, without reading everything after this, uh, I, I wish, I, I hope that you can talk about Tommy Lasorda's post-managerial career with the Dodgers and what he's meant uh, of afterwards to both Los Angeles as well as the Dodgers overall. Well, and, and, not, and the Dodgers overall and baseball overall, I'm ambassador of the, of the game. You know, he was, he, he wrote his, popularity and his success as a career manager. Yes, obviously after 88, you know, the fortunes of the Dodgers, they went on a downward spiral. Let's, let's be, let's be honest. Game five of the world series in 1988 was the last postseason game. He won sadly, you know, so he, and uh, one of the books that I read on him says, you know, it's post it's, it's, it was post the heart attack. And he hinted to the fact that maybe he shouldn't have retired so early you know, maybe he felt a little pressure from above uh, that it was time time to move on, and, and he was preceded by Bill Russell, one of his one of his mentees and shortstop for from the infield. And so Tommy became, you know, he was always at various roles, whether it was assistant to the chairman, uh, he was a, he was a, a general manager for a while during uh, during the Fox era after. Uh, I believe Dan Evans was let go. I could be wrong there, but he was a uh, temporary general manager. He always had his hands in scouting. He was always a fixture at spring training. Uh, there are love during the tribute that the tribute that the Dodger put out. The Dodgers put out. There is a, a lovely segment of him riding around in his golf cart, both at Vero Beach and at Camelback Ranch, with him. You know, just talking to the to, to the to the to the, either the majors or the minor league players, you know, motivating them in his way that he always did so well. And, and that, that's just a real nice tribute. And he even actually came back and my, managed a minor league game. And I believe it was 2008 when it was a split squad and Joe Torrey had the, the big, the big league club. I think it may have even been in Japan. And so Tommy came out of retirement and uh, managed uh, a series. It was a series. It was during spring training in 2008, which was, which is really fitting for him. And he was always a presence at Dodger Stadium throughout the years and on the road. My one time that I met him was in the bowels of Wrigley Field and just a few years ago in 2016. So he was always a fixture with the team. And yeah. I think he came to Chicago because we have good Italian food here. <laughs> that must be it. Uh, he also, <laughs> I, 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 you may have just mentioned this, but he won a gold medal in 2000. Uh, beating uh, I did not, but he Cuba. did not. Yeah, and, and, and he, of course, you know, basically one of his last champion uh, bouts 
uh, he beat Sabred Cuba. He he overcame all the odds to bring United States to a gold medal. You know, he was a master motivator. And one of his uh, uh, other infamous moments was when Vladimir Guerrero, excuse me, lost his bat while swinging and it flew towards Lasorda, causing him to fall backwards. He was unharmed, but it made for a great video bite. Yeah, that's in the All-Star game. I think it was 2001. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, yeah, it, it, that's a great video. And there's also, obviously, the video, go out and find it, of the Philly Fanatic. Uh, he and the Philly Fanatic had a had an ongoing battle. You know, the Philly Fanatic always make fun of them. And, and, Finally, and he didn't, Philly it's funny about that. What's funny about that, too, is that, you know, Lasortis looked rather serious. <laughs> like, like he wasn't in on the joke. He was just like, I'm not going to let this guy make me out to be a fool. Well, the backstory is it wasn't only a one-day thing. It had been going on for a while. The Philly Fanatic had been doing some things. He'd been doing, you know, poking fun at him. And finally, when he brought the doll out with the Lasorda jersey on it, you know, and, and that's, that's when Tommy flipped his gear. <laughs> it's a great – you go out there, you can find it. It's on YouTube. It's in the tribute videos you, you see of him. And he, and he does. He flipped his gear. And I think he is, you know, you're desecrating the Dodgers uniform. You know, you're going to do that. You're, you're going you're to have to deal with, that, with the wrath of Tommy. Exactly. Um, well, we, we have to wrap up. Uh, you know, first want to say that uh, just giving my condolences out there to the Lasorda family, as well as the friends of the Lasorda family, uh, you know, such is life. And I hope you are all comfortable right now as best as you can in your morning. And uh, Rob, I, I want to thank you so much for helping to to lay out this unbelievable managerial, this unbelievable baseball life that was Tommy Lasorda. And if there's anything else that you want to touch on before we go, by all means, please. Oh, thank you. First of all, foremost, I'm always honored and humbled to be asked to be on your show, Sam, because I love what you're doing in your research. And I, I can't wait for it to, to keep progressing. Thank you first and foremost for having me on. And, uh, the Dodger family, the extended Dodger family lost another, and a tie back to Brooklyn, lost another, uh, another man yesterday, yesterday morning. Guy Wellman was his name, passed away at the age of 99 and a half, born in t- July of 1921, first came to the Dodgers in 48. Uh, he was a minor leaguer, you know, a very nondescript minor league player. He was a catcher. And then after his playing days, he became scout. He became the minor league catching coordinator. He was always he was a lifer. He was a Dodgers lifer. He and his and my tie-in with Guy is that in the, in the in the 1980s he was asked to run the Dodgers fantasy camps at Vero Beach. So I ran and um, my paths crossed with Guy Wellman twice in 2007 and 2008, right at the tail end of Vero Beach. And he was a wonderful man who loved life. And who loved the Dodgers, and it was just really, really neat to be experienced and be able to spend a couple of fabulous weeks with him, as well, along with some of the other Brooklyn guys that I got to meet. So, rest in peace, guy. You will be missed. And our condolences go out to his family and friends as well. I appreciate you informing me of this, and um, you know, we just got to take every day uh, as best as we can, and, and hope hope that we. We can go as long as we can. So, Rob, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, 
thank you all out there for listening as always. We will be uh, back shortly. Take care. Thanks, Sam.